0: Haller, Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm in studio, as always, with co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, it is Tuesday morning here in The Score's studios. I think it's uh, Tuesday morning. Every- well, actually, not everywhere. I guess there's
1: parts of the world where it's not Tuesday morning.
0: Yes. Um... But in our part of the world, it is Tuesday morning, (laughs) and uh, we're gathered here with cups of coffee and some NBA news to sift through. So I feel like we should start off with uh, maybe the obvious piece of news that hit the NBA uh, late last week, which is that Carmelo Anthony is coming back to the league after just over a year out of the game. Um, He was essentially asked by the Houston Rockets to make himself scarce uh, almost exactly a year ago, Um, spent the rest of last season trying to find another NBA home. There were reports that the Lakers were maybe interested in him. That never came to fruition. And he has kind of always just remained on the periphery of the NBA discussion, releasing the odd video of him shooting in an empty gym, doing media blipses, talking about how badly he wanted back in the league. And now at long last, uh, there is a team that found itself in a situation where it essentially required his services. Now we, we can debate the merits of that requirement or that perceived requirement, but the Portland Trailblazers essentially were desperate enough to roll the dice on Carmelo Anthony. And it's really like a low-risk proposition, I think, because they gave him a non-guaranteed contract. The guarantee date is not until January 7th, so they have about six weeks to figure out whether he can actually help them. What did you think about this move?
1: I think it was surprising in that I had just become resigned to the fact that Carmelo Anthony was probably never going to play another NBA game again. Even though, you know, he hadn't retired, even though there was always whispers, the teams were checking in on him. I I just didn't think it was going to happen anymore. And it's surprising from that standpoint. I don't think the team itself is that surprising. If someone told me he would be back in the NBA, the Blazers, especially the way they started the season, are one of the teams I would have said made a lot of sense. You wrote about this. It's a marriage of desperation in a lot of ways. In every way, basically. You know, if the Blazers are, I think right now they're what, 5-8? and So if the Blazers are eight and five, I think they're five and nine now. They okay, got
0: throttled by the Rockets. Right. Yeah. Day. So
1: if the if if say we flip that, if the Blazers are nine and five or eight and five at the time, the move was made, whatever it was, and are rolling and are playing well and are maybe a little healthier, do they still sign Carmelo Anthony? I'm gonna bet that the answer is no, right? And I think that even though we have no proof of that, that's just my gut feel. And if that is the case, I think that speaks to the fact that. It, <laughs> It's hard to expect this to go well when the team probably wouldn't have even wanted him had their season already been going well. Now, that doesn't mean he can't help them. He could, right? It's unlikely, but he could. If Carmelo Anthony is the guy that everyone hoped he would be for like the last half decade and accept a role that everyone wanted him to accept the last three years, then it could. But there's no reason to believe he'll do that. There's also no reason to believe even from like a skill standpoint, you know, even if you want to turn him into like a spot-up shooter or something... Like Carmelo Anthony's, it's he's shooting basically right around league average as a three-point shooter the last half decade, five years. So he's right at thirty-five percent. He he can step in and be the type of player that maybe once every few games can catch fire and drop some points. But this is also a bad defensive team. He's gonna only make it worse on that end. Like long way of of saying that I'm surprised, uh, and I hope it goes well for both parties. You know,
0: but it's hard for me to envision
1: this ending
0: as a feel-good story. I hope so, I'm wrong. Would you say, if you had to guess, do you think he makes it to his guarantee date? Oof. Or, sorry, makes it past his guarantee date? You know what? I'm going to say yes. Wow, okay. I, I, I don't think so, but... Wow. Well, then he's he's got to be done at that point, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Regardless, to me, this feels like his last shot and it's kind of an opportunity for him to have some hand in writing the last chapter of his career and to go out on something resembling his own terms. And you're talking about, you know, whether it comes down to his adaptability and whether he can be the player that a lot of the NBA community has wanted to see him become late in his career. And I don't really think that's it. I don't necessarily think that he was inflexible in Houston or in OKC. Like There were definitely instances where he went to that ball-stopping jab-step game that just ground those offenses to a I feel a halt. like he but was inflexible in OKC, not Houston. Toward the end of the season, I think that he was. It's just like he wasn't good enough. He was not providing them enough offensive production to offset what he was taking off the table of the defensive end. He's 35 now, having not stepped on an NBA court in over a year. I don't see that changing. And I'm not even saying that Mello isn't an NBA player at this point. I just don't think he does anything to address what the Blazers actually need. And like, if you look at this team, if you look at their roster, if you watch the games that they've played this season, like they can't stop anybody. And I just don't see how Mello helps them in that regard at all I get the idea to a certain extent like Dame and CJ are being blitzed, the rest of the roster hasn't really done a good enough job of picking up the slack but the Blazers offense hasn't really been the issue their offense has more or less been fine and I know it's taken Herculean production from Damian Lillard for that to be the case but I also think McCollum will be better than he's been and I think you know, if you look at what you need from your complementary players when your stars do get trapped, it's like you need snap decision-making, you need the ball to move, you need a player to basically make a decision about whether they're going to shoot, dribble, or pass in a split second. And that's, that's never been Melo's game. And like, I think that he can, be, he can be pretty decent as a stationary shooter. But like I said before, he also can be a bit of a ball stopper. And it's hard to suddenly just start playing the game a different way after you've been playing it one way for you know, 17 or 18 years or however however long it's been. Um, and I guess that goes to what you were saying about about whether he fits and whether he can be adaptable. And I think I do think we saw a bit of that, especially in Houston, but we also saw him put up fifty one percent true shooting. And given how how upright and how vulnerable he is at the defensive end, that's just not good enough. So to me this is just a band-aid and it's not designed to be a long term solution as evidenced by the non-guaranteed contract. The Blazers just need somebody who can give them, you know, any kind of an upgrade over what they've been getting from, say, Mario Hazonia and Anthony Tolliver for, like, 12 to 15 minutes a game. And that just needs to basically tide them over until they can make a more meaningful move, which we presume that they're going to try and do after December 15th hits and all these guys who signed in the offseason are going to become available in trades.
1: You mentioned Tolliver and Hazonia. Like, the the Blazers... Depth at power forward is laughable. They started Nasir Little the last, I think, three games, four games. I don't think Melo is going to help them all that much, if at all. He might hurt them. And everything I think we've said over the last few minutes stands. Having said all that, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he's their starting power forward like within a week. That's not saying that he's going right. to earn a like or still be. No, a I mean, started. that's just
0: a statement of where their forward rotation exactly. is at right but now. But
1: do you, do you think that's that crazy? Like, they've started... No, I don't. Hazonia, I
0: think Tolliver's gone a, a, at least to start. And Rodney Hood started at the four. Um, and and Little. Yeah, and Little, I actually think, has been pretty good. His, offensively, he's been a nothing. But defensively, I think he's been quite impressive and easily the best of that crop of forwards. So... Again, I don't know necessarily that replacing his minutes with Mello is going to be the answer. Um, like the last time we saw Mello on an NBA court, he was getting targeted repeatedly down the floor and just getting cooked by any guard that deigned to go at him. And like, I, I, I just don't know what that is going to do for this Blazers team. Like, I, I again, like you said, I hope that it works out for both parties. I know it's been a rough start for Portland. They've had a ton of injuries to start this season. I'm not giving up on this team by any means. I think once they get healthy, we said last week, you know, they always somehow find a way to cobble together a really nice second half run. So I'm not burying this team. And, you know, when I wrote that piece, calling it a marriage of desperation, I got a lot of blowback from Blazers fans being like, chill, it's been 12 games. I know that. But they are really banged up. They can't stop anybody. Um, They've had some really tough losses. They would not have been making this move if they weren't feeling some measure of desperation. I just don't know if this is the move that's actually going to help patch that hole.
1: Yeah, for any Blazers fans that told you to chill because it's only been 12 games, uh, wake the hell up. First of all, well, now it's 14 games. But the fact that this team went out and signed Carmelo Anthony tells you how desperate they are right now that is an absolute move of desperation they're five and nine in the western conference they've looked mostly awful in a conference where a few bad weeks can bury you i believe they have the or one of the highest tax bills in the league this season you put all that together that is literally what desperation is in the modern nba and I would be concerned, and I'm not saying it's his fault, but I would be concerned if this continues to spiral out of control. Especially now, you add Melo to the mix. Like, if we start hearing about Terry Stotts maybe being on the hot seat again, don't think don't think he's necessarily done anything to warrant that. But we know how this game goes.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't know how much of this you could put on Terry Stotts. I think Stotts is a really good coach. Obviously, he's been there for a long time, and so when things start to look maybe a bit stale after a long coaching tenure. The coach does typically tend to have to fall on his sword, but I just think if you look at this roster and the way that it was constructed, coming into the season, they were already super thin at the four. Then they lose Zach Collins right off the bat. I feel like this roster was almost designed for an in-season trade as it was. I don't think they expected to get off to such a sluggish start, but obviously, you know, the circumstances being what they are has only exacerbated that need. And like I said, until December 15th, when basically half the league uh, becomes eligible to be traded, there isn't a whole lot else that they can do. So this is their band-aid solution, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, he's going to play his first game tonight, and I'm I'm interested to see how he looks, as I'm sure you are.
1: Yeah, very interested. What do you got on the docket
0: next? So Paul George is back, and he's played three games for the Clippers. Kawhi has not played in any of those games. The Clippers have won two of them, one of them by hanging 150 points on the Hawks and another one in which Paul George hit a game-winning three over his former team, the Thunder, last night. PG has 88 points in his first 73 minutes of this season. He is 12 for 22 from three, 22 for 23 from the line. And his per thirty six averages are forty three point four points, nine point nine rebounds, and five point four assists. He's looked unbelievable right off the bat. Obviously, he's still on a minutes restriction. We don't know how long that's going to last. We don't know when we're going to see him and Kawhi suit up in the same game. Kawhi has been dealing with this knee contusion, and that's why he hasn't appeared in the last three games. But the Clippers look like they're going to be in pretty good hands, and and when those guys are both quote-unquote healthy whether it's one guy resting and the other guy playing whether it's staggering their minutes and then of course you know the possibility of them overlapping for even if it's just 15 or 20 minutes a game I think we're getting a glimpse of just how devastating this team is and is going to be when they're at full strength
1: yeah you mentioned this team being in good hands well those hands that they're in are also being guided by healthy shoulders right and That looks like it's a big deal, because if you remember, for the first half of last season, Paul George was undoubtedly a top five, probably top three player, and I believe finished third in MVP voting, and then the shoulder injuries started creeping up, and his season kind of went into a tailspin from there, and he never really found that consistency again, and I thought it was going to take at least a little while for him to get back into game shape, and again, like we're talking about a basketball player who carries a large load offensively, who shoots a lot, having double shoulder surgery. I didn't expect it to impact the rest of his career, but I thought at least at first we'd see some rust, and instead he's coming out and just absolutely throwing smoke, like fire coming out of those shoulders. So yeah, I'd be very worried if I was the rest of the Western Conference and the rest of the league. Now, he's not going to obviously score this prolifically and efficiently all season, but the fact that right off the bat shown that, yes, he is still very much capable of being that guy again, and the guy that we saw for the first half of last, Last year just dominate the league you end up combining him with the guy that we saw dominate the league the last two months when it mattered and it's like man try constructing a game plan to slow them down on either end
0: yeah, and the, like you know one of the big knocks on the Clippers coming into the season one of the very few knocks uh, like coming into the season was that they didn't have a traditional point guard but PG has looked very comfortable being a primary ball handler Kawhi the same thing and you know Lou Williams functionally is a point guard at this stage of his career like he is one of the highest volume pick and roll players in the league. And he's become a really excellent passer. I think Uh, obviously maybe still more of a score first mentality, but suddenly you look at it and it's like, you know what? They do have an awful lot of playmaking and ball handling ability. And I'm still really curious to see what it looks like when Kawhi and PG are on the floor together. But in my conception I don't think that it's going to take too long for them to get acclimated. I don't think there's going to be too much overlap or they're going to be stepping on each other's toes too much because they can both play on or off the ball. I think they complement each other very well. Obviously, both excellent shooters, whether it's off the dribble or off of the catch. PG, I mean, he's a solid cutter. He can work in isolation or run, pick, and roll. Um, You know, he can spot up or he can pull up. And he's just already, like, showing the kind of... The combination of power and grace that he plays with, that sort of fluidity where it seems like he's moving in slow motion, but then suddenly he can explode toward the basket. Um, His change of pace, like his ability to kind of moderate his strides in order to evade defenders when he's driving to the rim, like he keeps defenders off balance uh, because he can go to those long loping strides or he can shorten up his strides or... He can pull up on a dime. Like he doesn't need a whole lot of space to get a shot off. As you saw with that game winner over the Thunder where he had like an inch of daylight and managed to get it off. So I'm really excited to see what it looks like when both of those guys are are healthy and playing together.
1: Yeah, I I can't wait till April when we finally get to see them both on the court at the same time. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? And it was sort of like that with the Raptors last year where Kawhi and Kyle Lowry overlapped for only 40 games during the regular season. And there were times where it looked sort of awkward where it didn't seem like they were they were meshing well, where there was like the Raptors offense without Kawhi and there was the Kawhi offense, which was just sort of totally separate and existed outside of that system. And we might see something similar where they really just don't play that many games together. But yeah, come playoff time, I think obviously the most important thing for the Clippers is just having both of those guys as healthy as possible. And... Uh, again like (laughs) i know you were you were exaggerating and and making a bit of a joke of it which is fair but at some point in the next little while we're going to see these guys on the court together and i think it's going to be pretty devastating all right let's move on to another player who has been exceeding expectations uh in a much different way than paul george has been and this is somebody that you wrote about last week and that is andrew wiggins so wiggins missed the last three games for the Wolves. Uh, I believe he had a death in the family. Before that, had just been playing the best basketball of his career. I think that's, you know, flatly, you can say that without really any exaggeration or hyperbole. Um, Averaging 26 points a game, 56% true shooting, 5.1 rebounds, 3.1 assists, 1.1 blocks per game, all career highs. Cash, again, you wrote about this, so why don't you Take the mic here and, and just explain what you've seen from Wiggins and why you are believing in this hot start. Yeah, so
1: when when he had a good week, good couple weeks, I wasn't really sold yet. And it's because the eyeball test was telling me there are still way too many bad shots in there. He's just making a lot of the same shots that we've been, you know, criticizing him for forever. They just happen to be going in. This is going to stabilize. It's not going to look great. And then I watched a little more and a little more And started looking into the numbers. And what I realized was this was a kind of a classic example of the numbers actually didn't match the eyeball test. And what I mean by that is his shooting, while it does still have room for improvement in terms of his shot selection, it has improved vastly. Like his shot selection is so much healthier. It's so much more conducive to an efficient game for him and the T-Wolves. And I think that speaks also to the T-Wolves. You know, in year two of Ryan Saunders being at the helm, this is something he's talked about. is wanting to solve their math problem, right? They never took enough threes. Wiggins was a big part of that, and I think it, it maybe it's a chicken and egg conundrum here, right? Where it's like, are, do the Wolves look like they're doing it more because Wiggins is doing it more, or is Wiggins doing it more because the Wolves have told him, this is how we play now? Either way, they're just a lot smarter with the shot selection. His shots at the rim and within 10 feet have gone up. His uh, percentage of field goal attempts that are threes have gone way up, and the mid-range and the long twos have gone down. Now, he's also shooting better from literally every range on the court, and so obviously some of that isn't sustainable, and I do suspect the actual points per game and a little bit of the efficiency will come down, but the fact that he's even has this healthier shot selection, I think, is cause for optimism on the offensive end. On the defensive end, I still don't think he's great, right? There is still something to be desired there, but what I've noticed is it's not as much of him like falling asleep on defense. You know, he's not looking the wrong way uh, when the opponents have the ball. He's not falling asleep in transition as much. Now it's just more of a matter of, okay, he might not be a great defensive player, right? And he's getting beat at times, but he looks a lot closer to a competent NBA defender than he ever has at any point in his career. And one point, you know, I, I noted in the piece was, I get that blocks and steals can sometimes be misleading when it comes to evaluating defense. But if you look at the guys over the course of history, Wiggins size, which is 6'7", or smaller, who have averaged a block per game, you do not find bad defenders in that group. I realize that's kind of a simplistic way of thinking, but I think it is indicative that there is like a competent, at the very least, defender lurking within this guy, just like we always figured there was because he's too athletic for there not to be. I am not saying he's going to be an all-defensive candidate anytime soon, but if he's even creeping to this level of defensive competency while being a pretty efficient volume scorer on the other end, you have to be happy with that if you're the Timberwolves. Because, look, they don't need this guy to be Maple Jordan, okay? They don't need him to be some transcendent, franchise-type player. They needed any kind of value out of him, first of all, because he's a max player. But more so, they just need him to be a nice, complimentary piece to Carl Anthony Towns, who actually is a transcendent player, at least on the offensive end. And
0: the Wiggins they're getting right now can be suited to that. My one kind of quibble with that is he has never really played like a complimentary player to Carl Anthony Towns, and he still isn't doing that. And he's done an excellent job in his role so far, so I don't want to ding him too much, especially because we've already done that enough on this podcast, but he still has the ball in his hands a little bit more than I would like, maybe even a lot more than I would like. And if you look at the possession data, um, he he's holding the ball like almost three times as long as Towns is on average. Um, He's he's at almost four seconds per touch. Uh, Towns is under two seconds per touch. Wiggins averages 3.1 dribbles per touch. Towns averages 0.7 dribbles per touch. I I know that's because like their games are different. Towns is much more of a spot up guy. Um, And even when he's just posting up, he's not dribbling the ball that often. Sometimes he's getting double teamed right away and passing out of the post. So there is some context that needs to ground that, but... Wiggins doesn't play like a complimentary player. He plays like a number one player. And the efficiency with which he scores has never justified the amount of time he spends with the ball in his hands. And it kind of does right now, but I'm still skeptical that that is going to continue. And I would just still like to see him exchange a lot of his pull-ups for catch and shoot. He's been way better this season as a pull-up shooter than he's been in the past. And I don't know whether to buy into that as like a real turn the corner kind of thing or whether that's the kind of thing that's going to regress. Effective field goal percentage last year on pull-ups, 35.6%. This year, he's up to 45.2%. But, you know... If you compare that to what he's doing off the catch, he's at almost 57% effective field goal percentage off the catch. Those drives, I've been pleading with him to be more of an off-the-catch attacker. It's great to see him attacking the basket the way that he is because he's doing it way more. But still, it's happening a lot kind of off the dribble, and they're coming after these sort of meandering possessions where he holds the ball before he drives. He's definitely been more decisive. But again, I would still just like to see him play off the ball a little bit more often. But um, yeah, the big thing to me, 13.8 drives per game, 10.1 points off of drives per game, which is tied for ninth in the league. And he has just never been remotely in the vicinity of those numbers in the past. So stylistically, I definitely think he has turned a corner. And because he's always been a pretty solid finisher at the rim, I do think that if he continues to play that way and continues to carry the shot diet that he has been carrying so far this season, then his efficiency, while maybe not at the level it's at right now, is certainly going to be higher than it's been in years past.
1: Yeah, uh, I can't remember who tweeted it. I'm trying to find it now. It was, oh, Seth Partnow had tweeted last week that, uh, a graph showing, like over the last six years of this player tracking data, Wiggins's year-to-year jump in drives... Per game and drives per 100 possessions from last year to this year is the third biggest leap in that six-year data point. And you mentioned, you know, his time of touch, his time of possession per touch. It is still a little high, but the reason I'm not as concerned about it is because he's now turned himself into a playmaker, or at least he has through the first kind month. Kind of-, of.
0: His playmaking, and this is another thing, like his playmaking, yes, it's evolved, but I still don't think that it's good enough to right, justify Right, but you're going to start somewhere.
1: Yeah, no, of course you and, do. And but... so you can't tell Andrew Wiggins, whose game is predicated on ball dominance, to go a completely
0: different way. If you tell him to go that way, then you are punting
1: on him ever becoming worth what that contract is worth.
0: You don't think that he can evolve his playmaking while not being as ball dominant? No, as No, I he's don't. Been? I don't. Why not? How, how would he do it? Like I how... be, we've seen lots of players do it. While Andrew
1: Wiggins is not going to be <laughs> one of those players. I'm just, like, it's just not. Like I, I understand that. There are still qualms, but I just feel like at some point you have to accept most guys aren't perfect players, and you have to, like, accept some of their flaws. And I think with Andrew Wiggins, some of that stickiness with the ball is just going to be it.
0: So if... I mean, I understand what you're saying, and it's like, if you view him long-term as being a primary playmaker, which I suppose they do, then maybe, yes, this is the way they go about it, and you sort of take your lumps along the way. I guess I just have never seen him that way, and maybe that's short-sightedness on my part and maybe I'm going to be proven wrong by Ryan Saunders and Wiggins will be a primary playmaker and all this stuff you know that has led to this point the journey and and even the inefficiencies along the way are going to prove worthwhile Um, and if that's the case then I will tip my cap I just think to me like if you want him to be a complimentary piece I feel like he actually needs to start playing like one which means being better about orbiting towns. But is that on him or is
1: that on the coaching staff? And the Wolves. I think that's way more on the Wolves than it
0: is on Andrew Wiggins. Well maybe so, but then I I guess you just have to say that it's baby steps, right? And Right. And um And he's taken quite a large baby step this season. Yeah, he's taken much more than a baby step so far. And, you know, again, we'll see if he can keep it up. But you know, my knock on his game in the past is just he's not bringing enough to the table outside of outside of his scoring and the scoring was never efficient enough to justify that and if he would just maybe focus more on playing off the ball, on cutting, and he is quite a good cutter and they they definitely have some plays in their package that get him cutting, uh moving off of screens, going to the basket and I really like seeing that stuff because I think that honestly is how he is best utilized. I just still don't I still don't believe in his handle enough to think that he can be an effective primary playmaker. Um, His handle or his passing. As much as those things have improved, I just don't know if I ever see them getting to the point where he is like a star player as opposed to just being a high-end role player, which I absolutely think he's shown the ability to do in these first few weeks.
1: My take on it is that he may not be able to do these things at a sustained rate, but you have to find out if he can. And this is the first time in his career, I think, or at least the first time in a few years, where he has shown he at least deserves a chance to continue to prove he can. And the only way to continue to prove that is by putting the ball in his hands and telling him to go and to operate the offense. He's talked already this season about how early season injuries to Jeff Teague and Shabazz Napier have helped him because he did have to run point. And he he said, even in just that week or two that he did that, he's now more aware of things like where the second defender is coming and where his teammates are going to be. I do think that stuff matters for a guy who is still young and developing, even though he you know he's been around forever. They're putting him in more pick and roll, like letting him run pick and rolls more than he ever has. I think before this year the mo the, the highest frequency of his possessions that were pick and rolls was like 32% and even that was kind of an outlier, usually in the low 20s. This year he's up to 39% of his possessions are in the pick and roll and in the pick and roll he's been more efficient than Kawhi Leonard, Jamal Murray, and I can't remember who else. Like he- there are these signs that they can at least continue to roll with what they're doing and if it completely falls off a cliff And he reverts back to the player he was, and the efficiency drops off, and he stops making plays for others. And absolutely, I think you take your lumps and you say, All right, we've tried this a long time now. He's just not going to be that guy. But I think while he's showing these glimpses, you have to at least keep going to him. And yeah, and I agree with you that in general, Towns should still soak up the bulk of this offense. But again, I think that's more so a Wolves issue. And I think it also might be more so a Carl Anthony Towns issue. Carl Anthony Towns, for as phenomenal an offensive talent as he is, has never been the type of guy that demands the ball. I mean, I understand that he doesn't really need to hold the ball because he's just a smarter offensive player than Wiggins and a more comfortable one, but he doesn't always look comfortable holding the ball at times when it does look like he's forced to. So at some point, what Towns has to be more comfortable holding the ball and kind of surveying the scene. The Wolves just have to, at some point, force the issue and say, this is how we're going to run our offense. But until they do that,
0: I don't think it's a bad thing that Towns isn't dominating the ball in terms of time of possession, though. I think it's actually indicative of the fact that he has become quite a decisive player, whereas Wiggins' time of possession tells me that he needs more time to get to his spots, isn't quite making those decisions as quickly. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And obviously, you need to have primary ball handlers like not everybody is going to be able to play Towns' role, where, again, it's situation-specific. Like, a lot of the time, he's setting screens, catching the ball on the roll, and either dunking it or passing out to the weak side right away. Or he's just catching the ball and letting it fly. Like, he doesn't need to to hold onto the ball for, I guess, as long as Wiggins does. That makes sense. But I think the disparity is still a little bit jarring. And I envision, I guess, an optimized Timberwolves team as functioning somewhat similarly to the way the Nuggets function. And Obviously, Towns is not the passer that Jokic is, but he has shown some really impressive passing chops this season, and I still think that he's good enough that you can kind of play through him as a hub rather than shifting all the sort of off-the-bounce playmaking duty onto your guards.
1: I think that's fair. I just think it's so hard nowadays for even big men as good as Jokic and Towns to... To be like the go-to offensive guys, I think we talked about this earlier in the season, but, you know, if you look at last year's... We're talking
0: about it in relation to Jamal Murray, is that right. I recall. Because,
1: yeah. like, if you looked at their numbers, like, especially usage-wise, time of possession-wise, in the regular season, Jokic was the number one guy. And then the playoffs came, and that flipped. And Jamal Murray became the number one usage guy, the number one time of possession guy. And I don't know. I think that's like kind of indicative of how hard you see it in Philly too. Like Embiid is undoubtedly their best player and you can dump it into him and get efficient scoring. And then the playoffs come and it's like, well, it's actually kind of hard to do that. So I just don't know, even, even for someone like him, I think it's very hard for a big man like Karl-Anthony Towns in 2019-2020 to have that kind of ball dominance, even if he did want it.
0: Did you see what Towns did to Utah last oh, night? Oh,
1: he eviscerated
0: <laughs> them. He um, eviscerated them. Yeah, he did a number on, on Gobert and the Jazz, uh, hit seven threes, and played some really good defense too. Like I, I have been He's so a- impressed with what I've seen from Towns this season, and I like this Wolves team. Like, Josh Okoji, again, just continues to be outstanding at the defensive end of the floor and uh, definitely passable at the offensive end. Um, Again, if they get Wiggins back and he keeps playing the way that he was playing before his absence, I I think they are definitely going to be in the hunt for a playoff spot in the West for the majority, if not all, of this season. And I, I don't see any reason why they can't grab one of those last two playoff spots. I think the talent is there. Towns is, you know, elevating his game to a place where, you know, he's certainly on the borderlines of the top 10 in the NBA and his versatility and the fact that he is really, I think, grinding at the defensive end now. And he's been smarter at that end too. His head is on a swivel. Uh, He's making the right rotations. He knows where to be. Uh, They've simplified their coverages and they're putting him in that drop. He's playing the five full time. And I think he's looked really comfortable in that role. And, you know, you mentioned Ryan Saunders earlier. I think he's done a nice job. And I think a big part of what has allowed Wiggins to take his game to a place where he is driving the ball to the hole as frequently and decisively as he is, is the fact that they are playing this five-out system where there is just more space, Uh, more shooting around him. Uh, The passes and the reads that he's making are a lot easier. Uh, And yeah, there's just more room for him to attack and it's easier for him to finish at the rim. And and that's helped Towns a great deal. And I think it's just modernized this team uh, in a way that we haven't seen over the past few years.
1: One thing that I do think is interesting is if you use the pbpstats.com, they've got the Wowie lineup combinations, which are pretty cool. The last few years of data, when Andrew Wiggins is on the court without Carl Anthony Towns, the Wolves just get crushed. It's a nightmare. This season, the Wolves' net rating with Wiggins on and Towns off is the exact same as their net rating with both of them on, and it's not—it's not mind blowing. It's plus one point three four per one hundred possessions. But again, we're talking about baby steps and just trying to find value from Andrew Wiggins. That is an indication right there that you know they're surviving and like somewhat thriving with Wiggins on and Towns off I think that's that is another one of those baby steps
0: absolutely um and yeah his on off numbers have been markedly different than than they've been in past years hope to see him come back soon um and and continue to play the way that he was playing because it's been one of the great stories I think of this early season
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and
0: breaking news. Let's stick with some CanCon here. Okay, we're going uh, <laughs> Cash, uh, I know you wanted to talk about this Raptors championship rings controversy or non-controversy, perhaps uh, from your view. So, why don't you start by just explaining to the non-Raptors fan contingent of our listenership? Because I don't think that they're really aware of this. Uh, what happened? Why some people think it's a big deal, and why you don't think it's a big deal?
1: All right. So, Jonas Valanciunas, DeLon Wright, and C.J. Miles were traded at the deadline in the deal that brought the Raptors Mark Gasol. There were a lot of fans, and I guess there was even like rumors in the media that the Raptors, even though it was kind of against tradition, were going to offer championship rings to those three players who played more than half of last championship season with the Raptors. I already thought that was ridiculous. But it was out there. Then it came out that Kyle Lowry, at some point over the summer, actually messaged or called or somehow got in touch with Jonas Valtunas and asked for his ring size. And so JV and a lot of other people just assumed, well, I guess the Raptors are actually doing that. They're going to be like the team that gives guys that were on the team at some point in the season, rings, even though they weren't a part of the championship. And then Mike Gantra of the Toronto Sun reported over the weekend, after talking to Raptors general manager Bobby Webster, that, in fact, the Raptors had decided, no, they will not give rings to those guys. Valentunas, Wright, Miles, anyone else that was on the team at some point last season. Greg Monroe. Greg Monroe, exactly. And then Greg Monroe is going to factor into my rant here. So now that we got all that out of the way, there are some Raptors fans who are upset. And to those fans, I say, have you only just started paying attention to professional sports in the last six months? Because this is how it works. Rings and all the things that come with winning a championship are part of the harshness, the cruel reality, the heartbreak that come with sports at the professional level
0: especially. It comes with the territory in... I think though... In other sports, I'm pretty sure that they do give championship rings to players who played for that team at any point during the season. At any point, I think in baseball at least they do. Like if you played for the team, you get a ring. Um,
1: so is that more like the team's discretion, or that's just like a thing that happens?
0: I mean, I don't know if there are actual rules that govern this in any sport, but I. All right, and, then- and weirdly, the thing that the reason that I know that is. Uh, it's going to sound obscure to a lot of people, but I remember T. Oscar Hernandez, the year that he got traded at the deadline to the Blue Jays from the Astros, he wound up getting a championship ring that season. Uh, In 2017, the Astros won. And he had maybe like, I don't know, 50 at-bats for the Astros that season. So that's just one example in a different sport that I remember All right, let's
1: rephrase the beginning of this then. Have you only started paying attention to the NBA in the last six months? Because this is what happened. I think there are some examples, like I think Vera Zhao, the Cavs offered him a ring. There have been other examples, but it's like extremely rare and usually for very special circumstances, okay? This is not a special circumstance. Jonas Valanciunas, DeLon Wright, and CJ Miles were traded because the Raptors wanted to acquire Marc Gasol. Acquiring Mark Gasol was the finishing touch on a championship team, all right? So all this talk that, well, what about like, what Valanchunas, especially, because he was there the longest, right? But even right and, and, you know, Miles was, like, a good guy, but he shot 31% from three last season. Like, he didn't contribute to the Raptors' run in any freaking way last year. He was the bench dad. Sure. But even Valanchunas, who is the most symbolic, right, of what was remaining, like, other than Lowry and, and DeRozan, who had already been traded. He was the most symbolic in terms of, like, part of the journey with the Raptors climbing the hill and getting to where they got to. That's fine. He was part of the journey. You can honor him in some way. He'll get a video tribute. He's going to get a very nice standing ovation in Toronto. Those are all honors. There'll be other ways, they'll put him on a plaque or something one day in the in the Scotiabank Arena. He was not part of a championship team, and I keep I hate that people keep tweeting about how he contributed in some way to a championship team. No, he didn't. He contributed to a great team, a perennially successful regular season team and quasi-playoff contender that probably would have lost in the second round again because they were not beating Joel Embiid and the Sixers with Jonas Valanciunas in the lineup instead of Marc Gasol. They probably would have had more trouble with the Magic than they did because Valanciunas would not have made Nikola Vucevic his child the way Marc Gasol did. So stop telling me that these guys contributed to a championship team. No, the championship iteration of this team was the one with Marc Gasol on it. Not the one that Jonas Valanciunas was on. They don't give rings for turning yourself into the type of player that can be traded for a real championship piece. Okay, they give them. Maybe for they should. Well, they should not. Okay, <laughs> I think the NBA should take over this whole thing. I, I take- and, and be the ones who decide who gets ringed and who doesn't. <laughs> And these guys would not get rings. Can I, can I say one you more want, thing? You
0: want Adam Silver to step in and decide who does and doesn't get a championship If people or- are going
1: to start being upset about the fact that non-champions aren't getting championship rings, then yes, someone has to step in. Look, I, I'm usually a very progressive person. And even in sports, in a lot of ways, you know, I'm a progressive person. In this case, I am glad to be like the old person in the room and the grandpa in the room saying, No, this is the way it is. I don't want non-champions getting championship rings. They if if they want a championship ring, they can buy one on the website that Raptors fans can buy one. And you know what? No, there's still more. There's still more. Okay. A lot of people have pointed to the fact that Superfan Nav Batia got a ring. Being like, Well, he didn't contribute to the team. I hear those arguments. Though, that is a valid argument. Nav Bhatia is not more deserving than a player of a championship ring. 100%. Having said that, come on. Like, let's separate the whole fan goodwill thing from player. Like, we're talking players to players here. Let's not compare apples to oranges. If you have a problem with Nav Batia getting ring, that's fine. But if we're talking player to player, don't use that as an excuse. Well, he got one in and he wasn't actually a player. Why can't Valanciunas get one who played 30 games in the championship season? That argument to me means nothing. I saw some people tweeting about how like Jordan Lloyd, for example, wasn't even playoff eligible and yet still got a ring, even though he he barely played at all in the season and then wasn't eligible in the playoffs. Let me remind you that when Kawhi Leonard hit the shot, Lloyd, though he was the guy in the suit crouching beside Kawhi Leonard, he was the guy crouching beside Kawhi Leonard because he was on the bench with his team. You need to be on the team to be on the bench. Okay. Do you know where Jonas Valančiūnas was for the one Raptors playoff game he attended last year in Toronto? He was in a courtside seat literally as a fan because he was not on the team. People have brought up Greg Monroe. And this is this to me kind of encapsulates the whole flaw in the argument. So Greg Monroe, people are saying, "Well, the reason he wouldn't get a ring is because he actually played the Raptors in the playoffs and lost to them." And to that I say, yes. Greg Monroe also should not get a ring because he didn't win a championship. But are we really going to give a ring to Jonas Valanciunas and company strictly because they had, I guess, the misfortune of being traded to a team in the opposite conference that didn't make the playoffs, that would not have played the Raptors in the playoffs? Like, don't you think it would be weird to give a ring to Greg Monroe who literally lost to the Raptors in the playoffs? And if you do think that's weird, like, there, you're admitting the flaw in the argument right there. Like uh, were, were JV and company more part of the journey than another guy who played last season simply because they didn't play the Raptors in the playoffs? like no they were not they were not part of the championship journey they were part of the journey up the hill towards becoming a championship team the championship team was cemented when they were shipped out of town for Marcus all
0: okay but you win. A championship for an entire season, like it's not only the playoff run. Like the, you have to get into the playoffs in the first place. In the Raptors' case, you know, realistically, you had to have home court advantage in the second round in order to get through that Philly series.
1: Do you know what I think was more important than home court advantage in that second round?
0: See, the, having Marcus
1: instead of Jonas Valanciunas.
0: I actually, I, I take some umbrage with that. Like, I think they probably wouldn't have gotten through Milwaukee without Marcus I think they probably still get past Philly with Jv. I don't think that Philly is sticking Tobias Harris on Jonas Valanciunas and getting away with it the way that they did with Marcus Gasol. Yes, Gasol's a better defender. I don't know, like, given what he took off the table offensively in that series, his complete inability to post up mismatches or score effectively inside, like, I'm not willing to say that that wouldn't have been balanced out. And whatever, this is a hypothetical anyway. I There's am no point. willing
1: to bet my replica championship ring with a value of $20,
0: those are going on eBay for like seven hundred bucks. So. Well,
1: J V, Delon Wright, and CJ Miles definitely have seven hundred dollars lying around. They can buy a replica ring if they want one, or they can go win an NBA championship, something that neither of them have done. Guys like Jordan Lloyd somehow actually have done. It. I, I
0: don't even necessarily know that those guys would want the championship ring. Exactly. But I and I don't think this would be a big deal at all if the Raptors organization or perhaps just Kyle Lowry going rogue hadn't telegraphed that they were going to give those guys rings and from where i sit like i know it's not typically done in the nba i don't have a strong opinion on this one way or another but i kind of think that they should and and i you know that goes for greg Monroe as well despite the fact that he was on a team that lost to the raptors in the playoffs if you played games for a team that won a championship then you were part of that championship team in whatever small way and if you want to give Jordan Lloyd, you know, enough credit to to say that he is deserving of a ring because he was on the bench in street clothes in the frame when Kawhi Leonard Leonard hit that iconic shot to beat the Sixers, then you know, give give some measure of consideration for the players like Delon Wright who played almost 50 games for that team and and JD not for Ugr- that team for that for team, for the franchise. Yes. He
1: played 50 games for the franchise last season. He not played,
0: he played 50 games in the regular season for a team that needed to win those regular season games in order to get to the playoffs where they ultimately went on a championship run.
1: Because of the trade Delon Wright was involved in that shipped him out of town.
0: Well, I mean whatever. Again, I'm not like I'm dealing in the facts here and not necessarily the hypothetical of whether they would have won or wouldn't have won without making that trade. Like, yes, those guys weren't on the team at the end of the season, but I think of this in some ways like I think about an NBA game and the way that you know, increased value tends to get placed on crunch time where it's like every minute okay. is as important but as the one I think this is a completely it different is. argument it because you're not, not you're not
1: ending the game with a different roster.
0: I understand. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but like you still have to win the minutes at the beginning of the game or like what happens in the minutes at the beginning of the game still matter to the outcome of the game. Like yes it may seem more important what happens in crunch time and in some cases it is. And in this case, it's not a great comparison because playoff basketball is fundamentally different from regular season basketball. But those minutes at the start of the game or those games at the start of the season still matter. They're still important. And they you're talking about the championship journey. They are still part of the journey.
1: But see, again, I don't like people are confusing whether those players contributed anything last season to whether they were like contributed to the championship. Like to me, they're two very different things. Those guys contributed to the Raptors' success at points during the season. Valanciunas especially contributed to the journey to get to the point where the Raptors ultimately got to. But they like their contributions should not be talked about in the championship realm because like th- should Jordan Lloyd's? Like no, but they should Jordan Lloyd should not be. But what I'm saying is he was on the team. Like it or hate it, he was on the team when they won the championship. I would rather, like, if if we're going to go down that path, then I think the argument should be, you know, should rings only be for guys that actually logged at least a minute in the playoffs? And then I'd be like, you know what? Let's have that argument. But if the argument is giving rings to people who did not win the championship, this is so asinine to me. Are these the same people that don't want to keep score in like kids' sports because they don't want people? <laughs> wow! Yeah, you Let's- really went
0: there. I did go
1: there. Okay. Uh, anyway, listen. But I- these are professional
0: athletes making. I-, I do not have the emotional energy to argue with this with you about this because I don't. I'm also I- I don't super ticked because, as you it, but- know,
1: we we uh, we lost parts of this podcast and had to re-record certain points due to uh, technical difficulties in our studio.
0: Yeah. So now Has- hasn't blunted your rage at all? Though, no, surprisingly. I-
1: haven't been this mad in the studio since Ernie Grunfeld had a job. <laughs>
0: um, well, Ernie Grunfeld no longer has a job, so I, I know you needed something to to fill that vacuum of peevishness um, that that has been kind of sustaining you for the past...
1: Hey, if the Rockets had won a title last year, would Mello... Should Mello have gotten a
0: ring? Yeah, why not, man? Uh, anyway, let's... Let's close with something kind of tangentially related to Ernie Grunfeld, now that you've brought him up, uh, which is just a statistical oddity that I felt inclined to point out, which is that the Washington Wizards, though they were regrettably eclipsed last night by both the Boston Celtics and the Dallas Mavericks, for one brief, glorious moment yesterday, held the number one offensive rating in the NBA. Cash, how on earth... As possible, I mean Bradley Beal is awesome, is one, but
1: uh, that doesn't explain enough of it because this roster is a tire fire, and there is not nearly enough NBA talent on here for them to even be sniffing the top ten in offensive efficiency. Let alone the fact they were number one, you know, an eighth of the way through the season. Uh, You know, give some credit to Scott Brooks and the overall system. There's a lot of ball movement going on. There's a lot of off-ball movement going on. It flows. It moves well when you're watching it. You can aesthetically see, like, oh, this offense, you know, aesthetically makes sense, and they have an offensive star, um, you know, as the fulcrum in Bradley Beal. But again, I, I don't think that explains all of it. I think some of it is just the small sample size theater, right? 10, 11 games is a decent sample size, but it's not big enough to kind of weed out um, the BS from what's real. And, and I think a lot of this offense will turn out to be BS.
0: You don't think Mo Wagner is going to sustain his 73% true shooting? <laughs> I most certainly season?
1: do not. But you know what? If he does, give him a ring.
0: <laughs> I mean, sure. The Wizards would be happy to hang that banner, I'm sure. As you know, they uh, they haven't had a whole lot to celebrate. So Yeah, I don't think they'll
1: have to be uh, worried about who to give a ring to and not give a ring to anytime soon. Yeah.
0: Well, let's give them some credit because... Look, the the Wizards remain uh, quite a bad team, uh, namely because their defense is, in my mind, the worst in the NBA. I know the Warriors rank 30th right now. I think the Wizards are 29th in defensive efficiency. I think there's more defensive talent on the Warriors than there is on the Wizards. Uh, So that is mitigating their ridiculous offensive start. But I will give them credit for being far more watchable than I expected them to be, because I expected them to be both very bad and impossible to watch but they've actually you know played like you said some nice free-flowing offensive basketball Rui Hachimura has shown I think a lot of offensive polish in his rookie season I've always been a big fan of Davis Bertans who is once again just lighting it up from deep Uh, Wagner as I mentioned might be the most efficient scorer in the NBA right now Beal very quietly averaging 30 and 7 Isaiah Thomas has looked pretty decent at the offensive end Uh, which is nice to see, despite the fact that he is still just tissue paper at the point of attack defensively. So they've been kind of fun, and you know, every year there are bad teams, and I think if you are going to be a bad team, you hope at least that uh, there's going to be something to watch there and that it's not going to be a total drag taking in a game on a random weeknight, and I think that's been the case for the Wizards so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still kind of a drag to watch that team play. But well,
0: you, you know you're at least going to see a high-scoring game, right? Yes, yeah, because they're Which a tire fire on the defensive end
1: and surprisingly very competent on the offensive end.
0: Yeah, um, so kudos to them. I don't know how much we'll be praising the Wizards this season, but I figured this is an opportunity to do that uh, while it's still early and the sample size is small. So congrats to them for their hot offensive start. And I don't know, if you if you don't have anything to add cash, I think we can pretty much end it there. I, I think I'm out man. I, I'm out, I'm, <laughs> out right. I'm out of energy on this one. There you go. So uh for Joseph Casharo, I'm Joe Wolfan. We will talk to y'all next week.